Welcome. You're listening to a UC Davis Center for Poverty Research conference podcast. I'm the center's director, Ann Stevens. In November 2013, the center hosted the conference, The Affordable Care Act and Low-Income Populations, Lessons from and Challenges for Research. The conference featured top healthcare experts from across the country to discuss the rollout of the Affordable Care Act and what the new system means for poverty in the United States. In this discussion, panelists Tom DeLear, Peter Cunningham, and Ian Hill consider the possible growth in demand for health care under the Affordable Care Act and how our network of hospitals and medical professionals will be able to meet that demand. DeLear is Professor of Public Policy at Georgetown University. Cunningham is a Senior Fellow and Director of Quantitative Research at the Center for Studying Health System Change, and Hill is a Research Fellow with the Urban Institute. Actually, you know, the FQHCs there are essentially more or less the same providers that the insured patients go to. They're just, you know, two sides of this of, of the same place. Um, but the, you know, um, that said, it's very, you know, while the FQHCs and the community health centers in Milwaukee are, are it's a, my understanding of it, it's a pretty good system in Milwaukee. Um, there's no county hospital in Milwaukee County. It was it was shut down. We talked about that a little earlier today. It was shut down maybe 20 years ago for a variety of reasons, and they've replaced it with this system in which the existing hospitals would, were, you know, took on not all equally, but the existing hospitals took on that demand themselves, and then were reimbursed through this um, through this. Uh, you know, they had they they used claims and encounter processing systems in order to seek partial reimbursement from dish payments. But, you know, there it was a pretty well, you know, there, once again, a lot of the uncompensated care was happening either in FQHCs, more traditionally urban FQHCs, or in, but the hospitals the patients went to with, you know, were not a county hospital. They were hospitals that also served private patients. But these are very different, different places, very different systems, and obviously you can't statistically adjust a rural area to look like an urban area doesn't make any sense. And so even though what we, we tried to do on the case mix, it's a very different thing. So I can't, I'm not, I think it's the health system that's very different, but, you know, once again, can't really be that sure. Yes? Just to follow up on that, did you parse the hospitalizations by surgeries versus not? By surgeries? Um, Well, Marshfield did everything for the patients. Whatever you saw, if you're in up, if you're in Marshfield and you go to the hospital or anything, you're going to the Marshfield Clinic, or, or unless you're getting in the car and driving somewhere else. So they also they did surgeries, they did everything else. I don't know how much Marshfield was drawing upon patients from outside their catchment area to get surgeries there, but this population we were looking at were more residents of that area. You know who had been receiving uncompensated care in the area, and then might have been receiving. So the, you know, so I don't know how much of our hospitalizations in our Marshfield study weren't able to parse out that finely. Um, you know how many of them were getting outpatient surgical surgeries or anything like that. Probably not that much. But I, but once again, I'm not. You know, this is more the 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 the, the population that we were studying in Marshfield were people who lived in that area who were receiving uncompensated care while uninsured, and then we're enrolled into the Badger Care core plan for uninsured, uh, for, for low-income adults. Yeah. Um, this is kind of related to that question also, but could you just uh, give us some context about, in Wisconsin, 
how uncompensated care at hospitals and emergency departments work. I know in some states, um, the uninsured receive, you know, very automatically receive uncompensated care when they walk into the hospital. They don't get billed if they're under a certain income level. And then in some states, there's more aggressive collection. And could this explain maybe the difference with the Oregon results or do they find something? That's a good, I, I don't know how it worked in Marshfield, how they, whether they, how aggressive they were in trying to um, bill. But in the, in the sample that we had in Milwaukee, the individuals would, um, were basically had a unique ID, and if they, once they received uncompensated care from a participating provider in, Mil in Milwaukee County, which included all the emergency departments and all the hospitals and all the community health centers, but maybe not all the charity care from outpatient care that might have been provided for by private, you know, other, you know, private doctors. Um, the, then the doctors would submit at the end of the year to the county how many, how many encounters they had, and they would receive some reimbursement from, from that as a result. So they, um, you know, the idea was by participating in the system, they were not allowed to go out and, and bill these patients. So for the patients in Milwaukee County, they were not getting chased, um, you know, for the providers that were participating in the system. So do you think, sorry, just to follow up, um, do you think the increase in utilization then, so it, it sounds to me like the patients themselves didn't actually have any change in their out-of-pocket costs. Do you think this increase in utilization you see is then driven by the providers themselves now that they can get higher? <coughs> the, the, the patients in Milwaukee were uninsured yeah. prior to being enrolled in Medicaid. This, this, this procedure is a way to reimburse the hospital's providers. I don't, it's not as the same thing as these individuals having insurance. So I think it was a big change in their status. Now, the uninsured in Milwaukee may have had a better deal than uninsured in other areas, but they were still uninsured. And other areas are not, you know, other, you know, count other county health systems, safety net systems, there's a lot of, it's not an area that I'm an expert on, but there's some quite decent ones. I mean, I don't know what the range would be. People in the audience probably know better than me, but maybe from okay to decent, or maybe there's some excellent ones. But the you know the state of, of the of the baseline for uninsured populations is you know there's a lot of probably a lot of heterogeneity out there. And Milwaukee was probably pretty good in in, in this sense. And so, but still, I think the, the results point towards Medicaid being better in terms of their willingness or ability to access care um, because they seem to go out and do it. In Oregon, the 9,000 people said, put me on a wait list. I'd like to get, which is essentially Medicaid for, for, for adults. Um, 30,000 of them were randomly selected to say, hey, here's an application. You go ahead and apply. A whole bunch of them didn't even bother to apply, probably because they got jobs and their incomes went up, or they so moved they out of state, or they, or they moved and they never got contacted. They have no idea, really. But they think a lot of it was because they were no longer eligible, and they knew it, so they didn't even bother to apply. A whole bunch of people applied, 
but their incomes were too high now and then didn't get on. And then a whole bunch of other people, you know, they had private, they meanwhile had private health insurance. And so, um, and so that's why only 10,000 of the 30, they would have enrolled all 30,000 of them, okay. potentially, but they only enrolled 10,000 because 20,000 were ineligible or did not apply. And, and they didn't expand it beyond that to say, well, we have no, they, yeah, they didn't. They, all right. So maybe they were anticipating that okay. or or who knows. But I don't know and why. In Wisconsin and Milwaukee they got automatically. Yeah. So completely different in yeah, some states. In 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 Oregon, these ninety thousand people wanted insurance, right? They went and took the effort to sign up. The people who signed up actually took the extra effort of actually signing up. In Milwaukee, the thought was, well, we know about these folks and you know, actually, this program, the Badger Care Core Plan, only 65,000 people got on. Then they shut it down. They ran out of money. No more people were allowed to apply. They got their waiver. They had to be budget neutral. And, they only, and so if they hadn't put these uninsured indigent people from Milwaukee who had been receiving services from the county at the front of the line, they probably would have never got on. So it was, it, was, it was a group that they worried wouldn't have signed up, maybe wouldn't have learned about it, and they knew that they, the state wanted them on the program, at least they thought they did, and I think they did want them on the program, and they put them on the front of the line. They got, they got on the program six months before everyone else, and, and so, but I don't know how many of them would have been on the program if they had just done, been a first come, first serve the way other places would have worked. It was more the traditional way of, uh, but the Marshfield Clinic asserts that tell us that they, you know, because they had this captive, they're basically a monopolist up there, they had the incentive to go sign them up. They tried hard to do it. I don't have statistics of how successful they were. If I could draw a connection to the earlier talks on Massachusetts, and one of the reasons there was such a stark immediate drop in uninsurance was because of an auto-enrollment strategy. And there are real lessons for the ACA going forward. In, in Massachusetts, it was a it was a public program called ComCare. Uh, they already had from the safety net system in their data system information on everyone who had enrolled in that program. And at the flip of a switch, literally overnight, thousands of people were suddenly covered and enrolled. And it wasn't even put out as an option. Come on, you know, apply. And, uh, you know, we're in a position to do something similar with the ACA, but I'm afraid we're not. Things like the SNAP program. Any adult on SNAP is going to qualify under 138% of poverty, and there have been a lot of people, some of, the, some of whom I work with, who are really advocating for more auto-enrollment, and um, I don't think we're as poised as we should be to, to do that, because you could really achieve meaningful gains very quickly. Some states are at least reaching out to those SNAP people. Yeah. Right? I mean, like right? It's They're true. At least using the data to... Contact. It's true, but we just finished actually an evaluation of express lane eligibility, which is, is most often draws on the SNAP program. And the difference between the states that took SNAP roles and auto-enrolled versus ones that just said, we know you're eligible, here, here's a letter. And they would get 5 10% response rate maybe to those letters. So just the idea of chaotic lives, Dr. Katz talked about some of the folks that, that we're, we're talking about. Getting people to take action to apply is a, is a barrier in itself. So, so thinking about that, what do, you, what do you expect for the young adults, healthy young adults that doesn't want to get this cover and will just want to pay the penalty and don't bargain? What do you think that population is going to happen? Because 
as in diazepine, I know that we don't know what yeah. they're going to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are others who might be able to know more about this than I, than I can comment. Um, the surveys I've seen from folks like Kaiser um, show that this, is an, uh, this younger population values insurance quite a lot and values the notion of coverage quite a lot. And so the, this picture of them as being, you know, don't bother me, um, may be an overstatement. And so I think, I think there's hope for... for um, for reasonable levels of enrollment, plus the penalties go up pretty fast. You know, it's it's nominal the first year, but but within a couple of years, you're looking at real money. Yeah. So. Plus, I think you have to remember that young adults, at least younger than 26, can now get on their parents' policy, and at least I've heard anecdotally that even if young adults who can't get on their parents' policy and aren't particularly motivated to sign up for the exchanges their parents will, will pick up the tab for that as well. So I think it's, I think for some young adults, they're still getting support one way or the other from their parents. But I, I agree with Ian. I think the sort of dichotomy that we've kind of created, or I, frankly, it's probably more media-driven, media that you've got the young invincibles on the one hand, and then you got everybody, you know, in my age group that's old, old and decrepit, uh, <laughs> and it's going to drive up the premiums, is, you know, it's an exaggeration because I think... There are a lot of young adults who value insurance, who I think if they get the right price, maybe with a little help from mom and dad, will sign up. And then there's, there's a lot of people uh, in the older groups that, yeah, okay, maybe, they're, you know, maybe the premiums are going to be higher, but they're still pretty healthy. They're not going you know, to break the bank or, or destabilize the insurance market if they enroll disproportionately. I think that dichotomy is coming up and those people right now had access to relatively low premiums in the individual market to young people and are choosing not to enroll. So, I mean, what, so just, yeah. the market worked pretty good for 25-year-old single men right. in the individual market. It was sort of, that was their market. Yeah, right. So. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there are always going to be, look, there's, there's going to be little niches like that where, and, and unfortunately the media tends to focus on that. I mean, when you talk about, now you hear a lot about all the, the policies are being canceled and that, and that sounds horrible, but you, know, you have to wait, okay, well, what kind of coverage are they going to get instead? Maybe the premiums will be a little bit higher, but maybe they're also going to get better coverage. And so you kind of have to wait to see how things kind of shake out with all of that. In Milwaukee, we looked one year, okay. and in Marshfield, we looked two years. And that only had to do with the timing of the study when we finished Earth. <laughs> so I guess my question is, is, is your study ongoing to continue to watch these trends over, over time? Um, and I ask that because I think about... Are you a funder? Results in, in, in Wisconsin, in, in Milwaukee, were certainly, and I should have emphasized this more, one year following enrollment. So certainly some of the, um, the fact that we saw such large increases in emergency department visits, part of that could be that it does, even, you know, 
for the best of us who, you know, when we change jobs and have good private insurance, take some time to integrate ourselves into a new health system and find a new primary care doctor. Might, these challenges are probably even larger for this group that was enrolled into the core plan. And so if they had been receiving care at the emergency department before, which is not necessarily, it's not efficient, but it's not bad care, um, uh, they might have just continued to do that. And whether that was a temporary or you know, whether things might have shifted from more primary care and less emergency department care in, in the longer run, I think remains to be seen. And so I would like to follow up on this, but we will see. This is not, this is not inexpensive stuff to do if there are funders out there. So. <laughs> I guess I want to maybe I'll round out uh, with one last question, which is that as I listen to just the relatively small number of papers we've heard today, it's very clear, and people have made this point, there's a lot of variation if you look at Oregon versus different parts of Wisconsin. And it strikes me that given the complexities and that the baseline conditions matter and the populations matter and the implementation matters, we're going to end up down the road with a lot of very well done studies that reach different conclusions. And I think there's going to be a really high payoff to doing some sort of analyses that group the studies and as uh, I think Tom very nicely did compare and see what's different and try to make some sense of it the cynical part of me uh, says well at least in academic publishing there's not even though I think those are super important there's not a huge return to that and so I wonder if anyone has any thoughts on how as a research community we can sort of make sure that happens in the next decade uh, around the ACA people like Irving, I mean, your point is that I think that's the academic right. system yeah. doesn't reward that. Right, right. Like, there's good work to be done by people like Irving, the Center for Study Health, and, and they are worth Right, and there are groups like Robert Johnson that, yep. that yeah, are committed to the issue. Yeah. So I think, um, I think there's hope there. Yeah, okay. yeah. And I think that, I think that politics, more than any of us could have dreamed, maybe, um, are going to confound the story more than more than anything. I mean, I think there's such a clear haves and have-nots taking shape in terms of the 17 states that are setting up their own exchanges that are really trying to make it work versus states where it's being actively um, opposed. You know, I think the estimates were that five or six states might have to rely on a federally facilitated exchange, but it's 35. And the idea of dealing with 35 different arcane Medicaid systems and hundreds of insurers in 35 states, I mean, it's not at all surprising we see healthcare.gov, you know, having so many problems. But I think, and, and I, a few of you have talked about my colleague Jenny Kenny and some of the work she's done. Massive numbers of people uninsured currently are living in those states that aren't expanding Medicaid. So we've got this absurd situation of creating new coverage for working poor but leaving the destitute out of luck. I mean, so it's just going to be a crazy picture for a while. The, the, I mean, just the only dissenting, maybe you could say somewhat cynical, uh, the only thing I worry about is give, given how politically toxic the Affordable Care Act is, uh, I, I do worry about... Um, you know, and, I, and I'm not sure, and whether you're talking about public funders or whether you're talking about private funders, is there going to be, is there going to be a funder, or are there funders out there who are going to be willing to fund something that, that, sa that, that says in some way, big or small, something with the ACA doesn't work very well? Because the consequences of that, uh, 
you know, I, I mean, and, and it's not just, well, but we can fix it. It's, you know, it's not, you know, but I mean, that kind of finding is taken by, you know, those who don't want the Affordable Care Act, and then they want to use it to undermine it. And so it's just, it's a, it's a very difficult, I, I just kind of view it maybe for the next year or two as a very difficult political environment for both funders and researchers to be operating in because I think there's just enormous pressures whether you're pro ACA or negative ACA that you know you know not to just let let the results uh, tell what they tell what they are but what what is the interpretation of that in terms of in terms of uh, the legislation itself okay. and we'll take one last comment well, just on another sort of interesting What will the impact be for, for them on their safety net hospitals and their FDCs in those states compared to the states where they potentially, those particular institutions, stand to really benefit um, and improve who they serve and how they're able to serve them? And that might be a really interesting study. I mean, my, my crystal ball was cloudier than usual uh, a year or so ago. I would never dream that there were, that the politics would be so toxic that this many states wouldn't expand. But I, but I still believe pretty firmly that it's only a matter of a few years before governors and legislatures are going to be crushed by hospital associations and physician associations and safety net hospitals. I mean, they're just they're leaving millions and millions on the table, and they well, and they and it, yeah. Want to do their yeah, yeah. And, well, and, and they already are. Right? I mean, that, I think I think in in Ohio, which has which has a Repu very Republican, well, has a Republican governor. I think the legislature. I think they sort of flipped on Medi They they did expand Medicaid, and a lot of that has to do with with uh, pressure and and lobbying from from the hospital association because they're telling them, do you want to see hospitals start closing down in this state uh, if you don't expand Medicaid? And I know they're doing the same in Texas. But you know, again, it's it's just the political resistance in some states is so severe that it doesn't really matter. In fact, the governor of Texas says he thinks it's okay that emergency rooms uh, provide you know are the providers of last resort. That that's a, that's not a bad way to do your healthcare system. Um, so I think that is happening, and, and Ian's right. I think over time it is going to. I, I you know it's, they're just not going to be able, what, especially if they see some of their their big hospital systems because it's not just the state government it's other hospitals in the system in the community that don't want to see their public hospital or safety net hospital go under because they know what that's going to mean for them mm -hmm. so there's there is a lot of uh yeah there there is a lot of pressure to to do this and i think over time it will uh, so uh, yeah. really this time the last comment follow-up <laughs> back here and then we'll take a break you kind of took my breath away when you talked about funders not being interested in comparative studies. Oh, no, now I'm in trouble. <laughs> uh, but um, having, you know, worked for funders for a while, and I know exactly what you're saying. But do you think that you know, all I'll say is I, I have experienced a few things myself in the past year and have seen a few other things where it is very difficult for fund for some funders 
to want to put out something that could be even mildly construed as negative towards the ACA. Uh, and that concerns me going forward because, you know, again, as a researcher, you know, it's not a black, we know it's not a black and white world. We know it's not, we know it's not going to be, well, the ACA is spectacular or the ACA is a big flop. It's going to be some things work well as planned, some things didn't work well as planned. And so how do we fix this? But I, I just, I'm just concerned in the current environment that it may be difficult to get that kind of research done. We're going to take a short break till three, and then we will convene for our final session. I'm Ann Stevens, the director of the Center for Poverty Research at UC Davis, and I want to thank you for listening. The center is one of three federally designated poverty research centers in the United States. Our mission is to facilitate nonpartisan academic research on domestic poverty, to disseminate this research, and to train the next generation of poverty scholars. Core funding comes from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. For more information about the center, visit us online at poverty.ucdavis.edu.